podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, in particular, episode 51 of the show, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 41. But before we get right into the issue, Rich has some retroactive history for you, and, and I might too. We'll see. We'll see. A very special retroactive history. We kicked around making a Road Warriors episode about this briefly, but decided there just wasn't enough there to justify a whole show. Cast and crew of the Weird Warriors podcast went and visited Sue Glansman two weeks after Easter. We did a couple of small tasks for her, went out for lunch, and paid our respects to Sam. Max met Sue's adorable Yorkie Zuni and got his first-hand look at the staggering archives Sam left behind. Sue had hung up that framed flag mosaic I gave her last year in her foyer. I loaded photos to the House of Glansman and Episode 30 Weird War Tales 2 1997 albums if anyone wants to go back and look at them. Yeah, I was absolutely stunned by the material that Sue showed us. In my opinion, it is a treasure trove of private sketches, notes, hand-drawn layouts of easily recognizable published work like the elopement that you may have heard of on this show right here, the correspondence with fellow and aspiring creators, and as well as some actual original art, including that stunning painting of the USS Stevens and some other stuff like a Batman versus Hitler original piece of art with ink on the page, you know, stuff like that. However, when I reached out to what few comic industry quote-unquote contacts I had interacted with in the past about helping Sue with figuring out what to do with all of this material, only one such contact responded. And the best answer they had for me was to contact the two museums of comic art, San Francisco and New York City, to see if they would bite. Uh, from the others, I received back only silence. So if any of you out there have any ideas about how to help Sue Glansman see to it that these materials are not simply resigned to the dustbin of history, please drop us a line. So that's our retroactive history. And seriously, contact us if you have any good ideas about that, because this stuff, I'll repeat myself, for me, it's the Indiana Jones line, this belongs in a museum, except it wouldn't be stealing something from another culture and putting it in the British Museum. This would be its rightful place. And I don't know that I know enough about how to find who might be interested. So while you all race to the bat poles to tell us about what to do about that, Rich is going to give you a little intel report. This should have just come out by the time this episode drops, unless it was delayed again. The Witches of World War II by TKO Presents, written by Paul Carnell with art by Valeria Burzo. In the darkest hours of World War II, Doreen Domini, a junior intelligence officer, 20 years old and already a war widow, is approached by a British general. He tells her he knows she's a witch, and that's how she can best serve her country. Domini, an expert on British folklore and the occult, is to use her connections in this peculiar community to recruit a group of British magicians and use their skills to gain some advantage over the Nazi high command who believe fervently in all this occult rubbish. 
Together with Alistair Crawley, the self-proclaimed most evil man in the world, Domini recruits a hard-nosed white witch, Dion Fortune, the grizzled and gray-bearded founder of Wicca, Gerard Gardner, an exorcist and con man in a turban, Rollo Ahmed. Together, this team of witches will travel deep into the heart of Nazi-occupied Europe and gamble their lives, their beliefs, and their powers on a mission to help capture Rudolf Hess, fervent occultist and second-in-command to Adolf Hitler himself. Inspired by the incredible true story of the New Forest Coven and Operation Cone of Power, the Witches of World War II delves into the historical intersection of magic and the Second World War with a dash of espionage thrown in for good measure. Stay tuned, folks. It's a very real possibility you will be turning to this one in a very special way sooner than you may think. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, when I saw the title, The Witches of World War II, I thought it was going to be another one of those, like, night witches stories that, you know, they seem to get targeted and brought up in comics pretty often these days. You know, like one of those um, all-female fleet of pilots or something like that. But this is actual witches, and an actual supernatural story. And I, I've, I've gotten a few things from TKO, as I know you have, and they tend to really recruit some high-quality talent. So I'm, I'm looking forward to checking this out. So I hope we do return to it. But until we do, and until you guys listen to what's coming up next, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll take a small podcast promo break here and let you guys listen to an ad for another super cool show. And when we get back... We'll dive into the issue at hand. L'amour, l'amour. That's French for love. Dear Reader, Season 2. Join me, Stella, as I look at the 1936 play The Women by Claire Booth Luce and its three cinematic adaptations from 1939, 1956, and 2008. Does the play highlight the complicated aspects of female friendship or display the cattiness of women when in competition with each other and with time? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcasting Network. Mary Haynes, what is all this? <laughs> I've had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! And we're back. So, as I said before the break, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 41. And as per SOP here on the show, Rich is going to hit you with that cover detail. Marked by one of the first credited appearances of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, although Luis Dominguez may have done the inks. 25 cents. The Weird War Tangles banner along the top of the cover with three heads, one skeletal, returns and will continue to do so unchanged until issue 44. The Red Weird War Tales title rests on a green sky. Two Union soldiers fire a cannonball through the center of the ghost of a laughing Union soldier. The ghost is advancing towards them and carrying a bayoneted weapon. Another Union soldier lies dead or injured at the ghost's feet. On the cover's lower left, a text block reads, The Dead Draftees of Regiment 6. Cover date, September 1975. Date of release, June 10th, 1975. Killjoy, I don't see any, but I'm not a hardcore Civil War nerd. Comments and commendations. I get why anyone would be shooting at a ghost, but why is the ghost attacking his own guys? It's not the best angle, but you can clearly see the ghost has this, this maniacal-looking laugh as he advances, almost Joker-esque. 
unaffected by the cannonball that just passed right through his midsection. Certainly an eye catcher. This issue came out in the summertime and Civil War reenacting was taking off at this time period. So maybe the timing isn't a coincidence either. Yeah, probably not. I mean, why would the ghost be attacking his own guys? Because the North are the bad guys in this story, Rich. But I don't want to get ahead of myself here. As for the cover itself, it is a beauty. I agree that LD or somebody may have inked this one. As for even some very early work by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, shout out to the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and that's the only time I'm going to do it. Um, it has an almost Gene Colon-esque shadowy quality to it, uh, especially on the prone body of the Union soldier in the foreground. It's, of course, gorgeously drawn, well laid out, eye-catching, and thematically appropriate, except in my opinion, for the choice of the bright green background color. What could be moody and spooky is instead kind of garish and weird, but not weird in the way that this series probably wants. Also, why are those three heads up there in the banner? They were copied and pasted from the internal art of a previous issue, and they sucked the first time. And now you let me know they're going to be sticking around for three more issues or whatever. That That's... <sighs> okay, okay. I'll just enjoy the... JLGL art and move on for now. <laughs> what we'll move on to is the story. It's, it's it's a full length there, people. It's 18 pages. It's called The Dead Draftees of Regiment Six. Script by two more first-time Weird War Tailors, Michael Fleischer and Russell Carley. Art by, as we said, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Just like issue 37's The Three Wars of Don Q, this, as I mentioned, is literally a full-length battle tale with no chapter breaks. So just like that issue, your two esteemed hosts will break up narration duties at the centerfold as close as is convenient for us. I don't know if it's convenient for you. I don't care. So synopsis goes a little something like this. It's the cover story. It's the only story. And it starts off. March 3rd, 1863. The Civil War has lasted longer than anyone thought it would. And an all-volunteer army isn't enough anymore to win the war. A draft law is needed. But it would hardly serve the best interests of the nation to expose her best sons to combat. It's decided that anyone that can pay a $300 fee or can hire a substitute can be exempt from the draft. The legislation passes, huh, and the Union Conscription Act becomes law of the land. Later, at the Second Avenue Armory in New York City, federal registrar Bartholomew Sims registers an obviously coerced substitute without batting an eye before going for a leisurely stroll. Running into Billy, a fruit vendor, Sims hands the young man his draft notice. $300 will get him off the hook but it's more than Billy makes in a year. Sims confesses he likes Billy and suggests for $20, he'd misfile Billy's draft papers for six months. Billy pays. He wants the union to stay together, but isn't eager to be blown to bits for it either. A few days later, a soldier drags Billy into the armory to see Mr. Sims. You're drafted, Billy boy. I gave you your draft notice myself. But but. What about the money I gave you, said Mickey Mouse. I mean, Billy, now you said. Money? What money? Send him to Camp Wainwright, Sergeant. He's in the army now. 
At that moment, in another part of the city, abolitionist Jonathan French speaks to a tent full of supporters. Just as our brave soldiers fight valiantly on the battlefield to crush the malignant forces of the Confederacy, so must we, as devoted abolitionists, fight valiantly at home to eradicate the bigotry and hatred that have spawned the diabolical institution known as slavery. But alas, our great movement needs more than your good feelings if it is to carry on its humanitarian mission. It also needs your generous donations. The proceeds are actually going to repay French's gambling debts. After his speech, French is chatting with supporter Miss Haynes when Sims walks into the tent and hands French his draft notice. He's to report tomorrow. Wow. Miss Haynes thinks it's wonderful that Mr. French now will be able to fight for his principles at the front. French obviously doesn't see it that way. He has to hire a substitute. French escorts Miss Haynes to the livery, where her brother Tom works. Tom had been working on French's horse, replacing a front shoe. As she leaves to prepare dinner, a devious thought crosses French's mind. He invites Tom out for a drink. Tom is surprised at French's generosity and figures he has time for one drink. But time passes, and French keeps buying, and Tom keeps drinking at the tavern. When asked, Tom divulges he had tried to enlist earlier, but had been rejected because of a bum knee. French later half drags the inebriated Tom to the armory and presents him to Sims as his substitute. A quick bribe by French makes Sim ignore the fact that Tom is obviously drunk. Sims tricks Tom into signing a witness paper for French's induction before Tom passes out. French is released, and the next morning, Tom wakes up on a wagon being taken to Camp Wainwright. He quickly realized what French had done and is furious, but reasons that he'll be discharged once the army sees his bum leg. That afternoon, Tom's sister runs into French at the abolitionist tent and asks if he'd seen Tom. He hadn't come home last night, and she was so worried. She's shocked when he tells her that Tom had enlisted that night. When she demands to know why he wasn't in the army with Tom, French says that the government had decided to exempt him so he could carry on his work with the Benevolent Abolitionist League. Meanwhile, at Camp Wainwright, Tom tells his first sergeant his story. The first sergeant is sympathetic and assigns him to a non-combatant role. Unfortunately, a discharge is out of the question because Tom had signed up. Tom understands and is grateful. A month goes by, and Tom is a clerk with Regiment 6 when the first sergeant gallops into camp on horseback. The Rebs had launched a large-scale assault on the front, and our boys were being cut to bits. Colonel Crocker had to call a retreat, but he refuses to do so. Instead, he orders all the non-combatants to be rounded up and sent to the front to shore up the defenses as long as possible. The first sergeant is stunned. The Rebs outnumber them 10 to 1. They'll be slaughtered but Crocker doesn't want his report to General Grant to say they'd withdrawn prematurely. When the first sergeant violently protests Crocker's reasoning, Crocker orders him to carry out the orders. And so Tom, Billy, and the other draftees of Regiment 6 find themselves pouring fire into an ocean of Confederate gray. They don't have a chance. And Billy yells to Tom, We're just draftees! Men what's too poor to come up with $300 to buy ourselves out. 
all we're good for is cannon fodder. Rebels engulf them, and within seconds, it's over. Only mutilated corpses and a tattered flag remain of Regiment 6. But is it really over? That night, the ghosts of the slain arise. They remember everything and now thirst for revenge. Colonel Crocker is first, alone in his tent and studying a map. A spectral sword slices through canvas and the ghosts of Regiment 6 enter. Crocker is terrified. Those ghastly wounds! You couldn't be alive! Alive? Oh no, sir. We're dead. They grab the colonel and haul him outside. Two of them hold Crocker at point-blank range in front of the muzzle of a cannon, while the other lights the cannon's touch hole. More of the dead draftees descend on the Second Avenue Armory, looking for Sims. They find him. We are men. You killed Sims. Killed with your treachery and corruption and greed. And now we are going to kill you. But Sims thinks it's just a joke and refuses to be afraid. He grabs a sword off the wall and swings it at the closest ghost. The sword passes through him and knocks a lantern off a table. The lantern breaks when it hits the floor and the room bursts into flame. Backing away from the vengeful spirits, Sims accidentally goes through a window and tumbles to his death. You said touch hole. <laughs> you said hard. <laughs> A wagon heading for Camp Wainwright, loaded with draftees, sees the armory ablaze. They jump out and start adding kerosene and timbers to the inferno to keep it going. When the soldiers try to stop them, they're attacked. With one armory burning, a crowd gathers to burn down more and to look for those who really started the war. Abolitionists and, forgive me here, Negras. Tom's sister tries to stop the crowd from attacking those in French's tent, but they grab her as well, as nooses get thrown over light poles. Mob violence roars across the city like a firestorm, leaving ash and destruction in its wake. What started as ghostly vengeance transforms into one of the most disastrous riots in American history, burning buildings, fighting police and militia, and hanging innocent blacks and abolitionists. At delivery, French loads his saddlebags with money and prepares to move on to another city to continue his work for the League. He's horrified to see the ghost of Tom approach him, holding a hook used to lift bales of hay to the rafters. French drops the satchel of money and backs away, trying to explain, but Tom ignores him. French screams as Tom buries the hook into his chest, and Tom leaves him dangling from the livery's rafters. He's glad they'd started the riot. All those rotten people got what they... But Tom's sense of victory is destroyed when he recognizes his sister hanging from a nearby light post. He drops to his knees and cries. For four days, the rioters surged through the city, burning, pillaging, and lynching innocent bystanders. When it was over, on July 16, 1863, a thousand men lay dead or wounded and property damage had risen to over one and a half million dollars. In the history books, these days of death and destruction have become known as the draft riots of 1863. But only you and I know that these riots were really started by an angry regiment of draftees who, for four whole days, transformed the streets of New York City into an unlikely battlefield of the Weird War. Killjoy! History Minute! <laughs> yeah, I know you didn't see that coming at all. The draftees are taken by wagon to Camp Wainwright. 
I can't find a reference to any such camp from that era. There's a Fort Wainwright in Alaska, but obviously not the same one. I'll mention a non-Killjoy on page nine, panel three, when Tom explains his case, hat in hand, to the first sergeant. Rank is period correct, good job. Tom calls him sir, and as an NCO, he's not a sir, but I'll give the writers the creative benefit for the doubt here and say Tom hadn't been in the army long enough to know the rank structure yet and was just being respectful. Just like the Andersonville story in the 97 reboot, I can make this in history hour easy, but will do my best to rein it in. A, both Union and Confederate armies had to resort to conscription for the first time in U.S. history during the Civil War because of unprecedented casualties. President Lincoln signed the Enrollment Act in March 3rd, 1863, requiring the enrollment of every male citizen and those immigrants who had filed for citizenship between ages 20 and 45. Federal agents established a quota of new troops due from each congressional district. Once set, states were responsible to fill the enrollment quota through the enlistment of volunteers and draftees. States worked not to draft soldiers, instead offering volunteers a considerable amount of money to enlist. Volunteers received a bounty of $100 from the federal government, plus state and local bounties. Combined bounties in some locations exceeded $500. This gave way to the practice of bounty jumping. Men enlisted, took the bounty, deserted, and then enlisted elsewhere to receive another set of bounties. Even those that were drafted often successfully avoided military service. Many simply failed to report, and those with disabilities or who were the sole supporters of dependent family members were excused. Any draftee not excused could hire a substitute, guaranteeing exemption from any future draft, or pay a fee of $300, providing exemption for one draft. The $300 commutation fee soon became the most controversial part of the act, leading to the widespread charge in newspapers and political meetings that the Civil War was a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Ironically, the $300 fee was, was fashioned by Republicans who saw this as a way of bringing exemption within reach of the working class instead of discriminating against them. Paying for substitutes had a long tradition in European and American warfare and was employed during the American Revolution. In setting a $300 fee, the drafters of the act hoped to cap the price of substitutes, who at the time received over $1,000 in the Confederacy, where the use of substitutes was abandoned in late 1863. In the Union, Congress ultimately repealed the use of a commutation fee in July 1864. Surprisingly, because of the widespread use of bounties to spur enlistment, only a relatively small number of men fought in the war as draftees. B, the New York City draft riots, July 13th, 16th, 1863, were violent disturbances in lower Manhattan, widely regarded as the culmination of white working class discontent with new laws passed by Congress that year to draft men to fight in the ongoing American Civil War. The riots remain the largest civil and most racially charged urban disturbance in American history. President Abraham Lincoln diverted 4,000 federal troops from the Gettysburg campaign to suppress the riots, troops that could have been used to aid in pursuing the battered Army of Northern Virginia as it retreated out of Union territory. The rioters were overwhelmingly Irish working class men who did not want to fight in a civil war and resented that wealthier men who could afford to pay a $300 commutation fee to hire a substitute were spared from the draft. This part of the tale increasingly gets lost in translation as time passes. You forget how much $300 was in 1863. This was the equivalent of over $7,000 in 2023, though a typical laborer's wage was between $1 and $2 a day. 
Billy said it was more than he made in a year. Hell, that $20 extortion from Sims is equal to well over $400 in 2023. I've also heard about Irish immigrants getting off the boat and being signed up into the Union Army immediately. Initially intended to express anger at the draft, the protests turned into a race riot with white rioters attacking black people throughout the city. The official death toll was listed at around 120 individuals and over 2,000 injured, although some estimate fatalities could have been around 1,200. Conditions in the city were such that Major General John E. Wool, commander of the Department of the East, said on July 16th that martial law ought to be proclaimed, but I have not a sufficient force to enforce it. 800 troops and Marines from West Point, the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and other area forts were dispatched, but the military did not reach the city until the second day of rioting, by which time the mobs had ransacked and destroyed numerous public buildings, two Protestant churches, the homes of various abolitionists or sympathizers, many black homes, and the colored orphan asylum at 44th Street and 5th Avenue, which was burned to the ground. The area's demographics changed as a result of the riot. Many black residents left Manhattan permanently, with many moving to Brooklyn. In all, 11 black men were lynched during the riots, and the condition in which some of them were left, I would hesitate to describe. Over $35 million in damage was done in 2023 dollars. On August 19th, the government resumed the draft in New York, and it was completed within 10 days without further incident. Although there were disturbances in other cities, none even remotely approached the violence in New York. The 2002 film Gangs of New York includes a fictionalized portrayal of the riots. C, short one. Since the root of the story takes place in New York, I wondered if the unit wasn't the 6th New York Infantry Regiment, also called Wilson's Zouaves. I, they served in Florida and Louisiana from June 1861 to June 1863, mustering out before the draft riots occurred. Yeah, I, I admit that was a bit of a stretch, but I have found some cool things for the show pulling on these random threads. Comments and commendations. As referenced in last issue's teaser, we return to the Civil War for the first time since issue nine's Blood Brothers. And how? I met Garcia Lopez at a con years ago and had him sign this issue. Check the album. There are so many similarities between this war and the recently ended one in Vietnam. We dive right in on page one. Draftees, nothing but a fancy word for cannon fodder. It's a rich man's war, but it's us poor men who's got to fight it. Only reason we're here is because we couldn't afford to buy our way out. Insert college deferment or bone spurs reference here. War profiteers, draft dodgers, career-driven officers who don't care about the men. As cheerful a tale as we've ever seen in these pages. And that's just in the first half. As infuriating as that first half is, it all happened. Or stuff very near to it. Page 3, panel 2, the stuttering farm boy, volunteering... For Mr. Vandeveer, who's you know, standing right behind him, Vandeveer will foreclose on his dad's farm unless he does. Panel six of the same page, Bartholomew Sims, God, the name alone, just oozes fat cat as he counts Billy's $20 extortion. Bowler hat, cigar, mustache. I want this guy dead already. We're only three pages in. Then you have Jonathan French, page four, panel five, preaching the evils of slavery and asking for donations to fight at the same time. When his draft notice comes, he gets what would be a 4F today, good and drunk, bribes Sims to ignore that fact to his voluntary substitute, and baldly lies to the worried sister about it the morning after. And lastly, Colonel Crocker, letting his non-combatants get wiped out over the strenuous objection of the first sergeant, just so he wouldn't look bad to General Grant, page 10, panel 1, is something that grinds my teeth a bit. The NCO did his job all issue, trying to take care of his men. 
for naught. The old comics man bell rings on page 15, panel 2, with who the rioters are specifically looking for, and page 16, panel 1, with the speech patterns of the black man about to be hung. This was an awesome first appearance for Garcia Lopez. A handful of art callouts. Page 8, panel 1, the rising sun on the wagon heading for Camp Wainwright. The field of dead under a tattered flag on page 11, panel 3. Page 13, panel 1, as the dead draftees drag Colonel Crocker to the mouth of a cannon under a full moon is horror 101. And page 16, panel 3, the savagery of the riots. Fires burning, two men hanging from lampposts. We'll be seeing him again in these pages. Flesher will do another full-length 19th century piece for us in Weird War Tales 88, Night to the Seminole, but that's that's obviously still a ways off. Yeah, just a bit. I feel like I'd add a little bit of a disclaimer before I dig in here. I liked this issue. It's a great comic book. Writing, art, it's fantastic. But as you might guess by this disclaimer, I got some other stuff to say. So, okay, here we go. What was up? with the Confederate sympathizer vibe at DC Comics in the 1970s. The only bad guys in this story, as far as their function in the narrative is concerned, are Northerners. The draft judges, abolitionist leaders, portrayed as sadistic grifters and cowardly con men, the Union colonel sending his men to die for the sake of saving his own face, and then there's the rebel army, you know, the one that the shifty union politicians had to resort to an unfair and exploitative draft law just to even have a chance at defeating. Again, sticking to what's in the comic book narrative here. As for the Rebs themselves, they only appear in this story as an unstoppable force of kick-ass fighters that the poor union conscripts stood no chance against. Why? They outnumbered even the enlisted 10 to 1. No wonder those shady lawmakers up north had to resort to all this draft trickery. Speaking of trickery, and on page 15, panel 2, where Rich has already pointed out, we get the authors sneaking in the line about who it is they're looking for uh, to uh, take out their anger on in this riot, and who started this war. On page 16, panel 1, Tom's sister is denounced as a warmongering abolitionist. Rich, you may be right about this comic coming out close to the Vietnam War and that being a big influence on it. But that last line about the warmongering abolitionists sounds a lot like current day Confederate apologist nonsense about the North. They were just using their anti-slavery rhetoric to push for war and so on. Combine all of this with my dearly beloved Jonah Hex, happens to be a Confederate soldier who's the protagonist of an entire series or a few series, the heroic spirit guiding the haunted tank, and other examples we've stumbled across. And I'm starting to get a very, the rebel flag is about our Southern heritage picture of the DC offices during this time period. But oh yeah, what about the story and the art, Max? <laughs> Pushing all of that aside, which ain't easy for me, and besides, I didn't even really do it. This is a very well-made and engaging comic book story, as I said up top. The art is, of course, fantastic. And, and given that it is such a very early example of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's work, I thought I'd have a much harder time recognizing his signature style. It was rougher than his work I recalled from the 80s, of course, but it is still very identifiable in spots. 
See page four, panel five, which is as much of a JLGL face as I've ever seen. And the visual storytelling throughout, it's precise, clear, and everything is interesting to look at no matter what's going on. So not bad for someone so newly arrived to our shores, eh? We'll, we'll get back to that comment. And yes, the writing was really good too. I have my exhaustively detailed issues with the not-so-subtext, but taken at face value, this is a very well-told story that delivers its message, makes you care and not care for certain characters, and it moves along at just the right pace on every page. So I got mixed feelings, but this is a good comic book. And we made it through all of that, I gotta add, as I'm just realizing during the recording, without mentioning or quoting the little man from the draft board once this entire time. So I'll sneak it in there and, you know, we can castigate ourselves properly later. So with the, with the whole issue, the full-length battle tale out of the way, we're going to move on to something I haven't paged forward to yet, the APO Weird War Tales letters page of this issue in particular. And my spotlighted letter comes from Jeff Newton, or Jeff that comes from Jeff Clark of Newton, Alabama. Jeff starts out his letter as follows. Dear Joe, Weird War Tales number 36 was the greatest. I was wondering when you would get around to doing a giant issue. I was pleased by the superbly realistic artwork on the first tale, Escape. Though my favorite story was Colonel Clown isn't laughing anymore. Tell Drake and Robbins they are wonderful. I agree. Rounding out the new stories, Bloody Halloween was exceptionally well done. Eh. And the Deadly Seeds was good. Yes, the 13th Man was a great Yandok art job. On the reprint side of the scale, The Moon is the Murderer was another fine work of art, as was, and here's why I picked this letter, Monsieur Gravedigger. Although the script was far from my favorite, see that that conflict is baked into the story. I'm not the only one. It's it's a fine work of art, and yet the script it's just I like seeing that someone else felt that conflict there. So Ween, Wolfman, and Heath teamed up to do a great job on the pool. Yes, they did. One of the best comic stories ever printed anywhere. The remaining short stories were just space fillers, in my opinion. So, you know, we have our editorial response, and general reader reaction to our first giant weird war tales was positive, if a bit sparse. So we're planning another 64-page issue for next year. We'll see about that. I said we'd get back to a certain comment about JLGL, and there's a little box on this letters page that uh, comes from the editor, and it says, a brief word about this issue's special novel-length feature, which we promised you for next month, but we're able to move up. It introduces two new talents to Weird War, writer Michael Fleischer, long the premier performer of our mystery mags, not to mention Jonah Hex, eh? Civil War stuff, Confederate stuff, never mind, and Sandman, and artist Garcia Lopez, who they abbreviate to just two names here, a recent immigrant to our shores, who you'll be seeing a lot more of, both as a powerful penciler and as an incredible inker. Oh, he's more than that, but I'll shut up and let Rich get to his letter. David Burson, Strong, Arkansas. There's a name for a Southern town for you. Dear Joe, congratulations on another fine issue. Weird War Tales 36 was thoroughly enjoyable reading. 
the art and plots for good. Most of them, anyway. In the future, let's see more historical war stories, eh? The American Revolution and the Civil War would make good topics and perhaps put out giant issues two or three times a year. And Joe responds with, the Civil War is delivered this issue. And the American Revolution idea is fabulous considering the approaching bicentennial. We'll get working on it right away. But there's no real chance of your other request coming true. Weird War Tales is too young a magazine for us to be able to do two or three reprint issues a year. We'll see where this title goes as the bicentennial approaches. I groused a bit last time about Jack Olick's writing in The Warrior Breed as a warm-up for the coming festivities. Like many letter writers have said, uh, World War II and Day After Doomsday slash future war stories are commonplace. Let's aim for more errors more often. And I shall continue on to your spotlighted ads. None of the big ads lunged off the page on my first go around, so I dove deeper into those tiny ads on the, you know, those multiple pages and everything. Came up with Johnson Smith Company's Magician's Book on How to Pick Pockets. Fundamentals of Picking Pockets for Magical Purposes by world-famous pickpocket magician. Learn fast, 125. Yeah, <laughs> for magical purposes. That is 100% there for legalese. So if someone gets arrested on the streets of Manhattan for having sticky fingers, they, could po- they can't point the finger back at these guys and say, they taught me how. <laughs> there were some gems on this page too, like a 99-cent pocket calculator <gasps> and a Star Trek exploration set for $3.29. Phaser, tricorder, and locator. Oh, to have that today. I can't believe I missed the Star Trek thing. And also, people don't know this. The little history minute here, a little fake history minute. Pickpocket Magician was the working title for the song Pinball Wizard for a minute. They changed their minds, right, you know, during the recording sessions. So for my real spotlighted ads, I got a bunch, and I'm going to skim over the surface of the first one here. There's a great Hostess Twinkies ad on the inside front cover here featuring Shazam. I'm not going to read the whole thing and act it out. But I will say the plot of it involves this villain, Aunt Minerva, who's going to hypnotize children using the the, using TV waves to to make them convinced they don't like Hostess Twinkies. So she's got something out for Hostess is her only plan here. But what I wanted to call out is the third panel of the strip where she's turning on her machine and she's going to start hypnotizing kids through the tube. It says Minerva quickly begins Operation Big Lie. Again, a little topical. I know they're probably referencing, if at all, the Big Lie from World War II, but you know, these things have a habit of coming back around. So do yourselves a favor, check out that Hostess Twinkies ad, and uh, probably, you know, pressure Rich into putting it in the album because it's just fun. But also, There was this, speaking of little tiny ads in the issue that I noticed. There's an ad for a silent dog whistle. It says, this whistle can't be heard by human ears, but Rover can hear it half a mile away. Your dog will understand that this whistle is for him alone. Be amazed how quickly he responds. I just got to say, dog whistle, huh? That thing that's drawn in the ad looks like a cross between a cow and a cat. But sure, I suppose... The rest of the entire story 
of this issue has enough dog whistles in it for everyone, though. Hey, and also this I noticed there's a little like maybe half page, quarter page ad for something uh, that looks uh, looks awesome to me. And I, I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it. And I'll tell you why in a sec. But it's a beautifully drawn pictorial ad, the text for which says coming soon and our all new supersize, a four part series, The Legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, a classic in the making, as only Joe Orlando, that's why the ad's in this issue more than likely, Jerry Conway, the writer, and a favorite of mine, and Nesta Redondo. Like, only these three could create this, the ad says. And the drawing is beautiful. Nesta Redondo is a fantastic artist, and this will do nothing to convince you otherwise. It looks so good. Again, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard it. It's Jerry Conway, some medieval King Arthur stuff. I would have gobbled this up as a kid, but unfortunately I looked into it and found out that The Legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table Volume 1 was a limited series unpublished by DC Comics that would have lasted four issues from 75 to 76. So it was likely a victim of a precursor to the Great Implosion or editorial just changed their minds or something like that. So that's why I hadn't heard of it, because it never happened. But this ad will make you really wish that it did. So there's my skipping stone through the spotlighted ads of this comic book. And mercifully, I'll bring you all along with me to a section we like to call Got Any Last Words? And I'll kick it off. I feel like I said my bit, and then some. So let me just change the subject to something less ponderous and say that Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is one of the best artists that has ever worked in the comic book medium. This is not debatable. And his work on the 1982 DC Comics style guide used for marketing, licensing, and for in-house reference by other DC artists is one of the most sought after artifacts in comic collector fandom for a reason. Almost every image you've ever seen of a DC character out in public on a bedsheet or a thermos or whatever. Yeah, those images were likely all taken from that work. Hey, Jim Lee, current president of DC Comics, just reprint the thing and offer it for sale, will ya? For the love of God. I'm gonna, you know, providing a, I'm providing a Facebook link to a great image gallery of the style guide, which we'll throw up on the socials for you. And, you know, I'll just say, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez was one of the first artists whose name I learned as a kid because his art stood out so much from everyone else's. So take that for what it's worth. Check out that DC Comics style guide. Y'all likely know who he is already, but if you want to join me and and yelling at Jim Lee to get that thing reprinted so we can all have a copy, please do. <laughs> I remember when I told you that who the next artist was going to be for this episode, you had this look on your face like, <gasps> so yeah, hardcore fan over on the other side of the camera. As referenced many times, I'm a World War II reenactor. The earliest era I might do would be the Civil War. I have ancestors that served in the war, and I'm a member of the Sons of the Union veterans. There are not a lot of Civil War sites near me, unless you count Grant's Cottage in Gansport, where he completed his memoirs only days before dying of throat cancer. John Brown's farm at Lake Placid and General George Thomas's grave in Troy, New York. 
I've been to Gettysburg, Antietam, Andersonville, and Kennesaw Mountain, as well as Grant's Tomb and the Glorietta Battlefield in New Mexico, the westernmost battlefield of note in the war. We were 109 years past the end of the war when this comic came out. The estimated 620,000 deaths on both sides make this the bloodiest war in American history, obviously, more than from both world wars combined. In fact, recent analysis of the conflict suggests the actual figures are probably closer to 800,000. The bloodletting was so profound that it led to the establishment of national cemeteries to commemorate the fallen, starting at Gettysburg. Goes without saying, I get real testy to all the MAGA minions howling for a civil war. But for the comic, albeit briefly because I already said most of my piece, loved it. Best full length theory yet, by far, plus good ads and letters page, well worth the Civil War wait. I hope we see more like this one coming down the road. Definite win. All right. Agreed. And I, I just got to say, you mentioned Grant's tomb. Uh, who, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Uh, Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> so with that hilarious little banter out of the way, we'll move on to our dead letter office where we check out social media, email, stuff like that. But you know, Rich has a little something to share with you too, speaking of activity on social media. So I'll shut up. Yep, at the time of this recording, uh, David Michelinie's birthday had just been a few days in the rearview mirror. And we got a note from Bill Mooney about said event. And I'm going to share it with you all here. David McLenny's revamp of The Unknown Soldier in November 1974 was a high watermark event in the annals of DC war comics. I was there as a nine-year-old when it happened, and it immediately became my favorite feature. This, in the middle of Russ Heath's run on Sergeant Rock and Sam Glansman's Haunted Tank and USS Stevens stories. This is the profound effect it had on me at the time. David's Unknown Soldier was the first comics feature to move me to tears. Glansman would do it later with some of his Stevens stories, but David did it first. Of course, Joe Orlando and Jerry Talek played a large role in the evolution of the character, but I think David's Unknown Soldier scripts did more to advance the state of comics as they existed at that time than in any other feature I can think of. I can't watch Apocalypse Now without thinking that David's Unknown Soldier could be a prototype for Captain Willard. I think that parallel is even stronger than that of the Conrad novel it was based on. I've always wanted to tell David what his work meant to me, but I've never reached out in spite of having communicated with other creators, including Talayak. I can never find the words that I thought would do it justice. Hopefully he's reading this or someone could communicate it to him. Well, hey, David, I went to David McLaney's Facebook page and I posted it on one of his birthdays, um, birthday posts. So hopefully he read it, sir. We'll let you know. Hey, that's fantastic. I mean, people... You got to go over to the Facebook page, uh, number one, because as I've mentioned, Rich runs it, so it's actually active and, you know, and, and interactive and fun. And there's a lot of discussions that happen there. And we hear stories like this. The Unknown Soldier was the, you know, Michelinie's Unknown Soldier moved someone to tears, which that's just cool stuff to hear about, you know, and how you don't think about certain titles being pivotal to the evolution of the comics medium. And yet here you go. Pretty solid proof that that one was pivotal. Just awesome stuff over on the Facebook page. And throughout Facebook and Twitter, I want to mention people that stopped by and said hey on either one of our places, uh, the Facebook page or at Weird War Pod on Twitter. We had 
our buddy Tim DeForest, who we'll be hearing from soon, who runs the comicsradio.blogspot.com blog. We heard from the Earth 2 podcast, from David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, our good buddy Herschel Nimis, Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, and more. We've got Magazines and Monsters, Doc Strange, who is Billy Delicious, and his other alternate, his alternate identity, who is the creator of Magazines and Monsters podcast. We got Ross from Stop Let's Team Up, at JSA4E on Twitter, who's the host of several of his own podcasts that are all really cool. Ed Moore at Teal Productions on Twitter, Chris Lydon, and our good and stalwart buddy, Martin Gray, stopped by. That's social media, in a nutshell anyway. Over on Gmail, we got a few missives here from, from two of our buddies, and I'll kick it off by uh, reading Jason Zeller's latest missive. And Jason Zeller is, as I am contractually required to inform you, the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, he wrote in to talk about Weird War Tales number 38, and he said this. I was so glad to see another Joe Kubert cover. I really like the looming Viking skeletons <laughs> waiting to strike from the darkness. Born to Die was a great moody story in which the past life did catch up with Wilhelm Schneider, and the omen of his death came true exactly as he said. The story really did the premonition of death cliche very well. And I agree with Jason there. Like, yeah, it's all cliches in this series for the most part, but it's about how you do them. He goes on to say that the renegade dog face had me thinking it was going to be a regular length story. And then I was shocked by the short ending. The reveal of the soldier being both a robot and a killer was very well done. I think this would have done better if it had been expanded into a longer story. Perhaps. The return, again, had the theme of remembering past lives, but in this case, Lord Byron actually was wanting to die there. Thank you, Rich, for his backstory and the great reveal that it is based on a real story. I enjoyed the art more than the actual story here, but still a solid outing. I pretty much agreed. I, I liked it. I thought the art was fantastic for that one. And then... Jason wraps it up by commenting on the man who would be God, saying it was a very good story. And he says, Max, you really lit up with this one. Gee, could you tell that it was a favorite of mine? I love the elevator pitch you did of Conan meets Rip Van Winkle. Right on point for this one. It definitely felt like a Conan story. The battle scene with Thorgeld and Shamar was my favorite page of the comic. The ending was expected, and it actually made me think of Ash at the end of Army of Darkness when he looks out and the area is so desolate with no people around. Thank you as well for calling out Beowulf and Stalker. I have a few issues of Beowulf and need to complete that series just like I need to complete Claw the Unconquered. I am telling you, I really wish the DC explosion of fantasy sword and sorcery titles really had stuck. This was a good overall issue of Weird War Tales. And everyone who knows me knows that entire last paragraph I am 100,000 thumbs up in alignment with. This is, yeah, I, I get Jason Zeller and me of one mind right there. All right. So then we heard from somebody else, didn't we? Yeah, we did. This guy, Tim DeForest, weighs it every once in a while. I also enjoyed the man who would be God enormously. I was thinking it would be nice to rescue Shamar from the comic book limbo he dropped into after his one appearance. He could be the star of an epic sword and sorcery novel, tracing his rise from humble beginnings as a common soldier to eventually becoming emperor with 
the man who would be God being the last chapter. During his rise to power, he slowly goes from a relatively decent guy, perhaps a soldier who shows courage and looks out for others in his unit, to becoming more and more enamored with power as he gains that power. Eventually, he loses any moral compass completely and becomes obsessed with conquest and ruling the world, only to meet his ironic end after his fight with Thorgeld. It's a novel I'd read, either as a prose novel or a graphic novel. There's probably quite an army of one-shot and short-lived comic book characters trapped in comic book limbo. Couldn't at least one of them be rescued? In episode 47, I think Kangaroo Court Martial falls just short of being excellent. First, I agree that the final panel showing the protagonist's corpse was grotesque without generating any real emotion. More importantly, though, I think the story needed to be a couple pages longer, showing him going through some initial torture and really playing up his internal struggle over whether he would break and talk. That could have left the impression that the court-martial was something he himself psychically generated with the idea of being he gave up his own life rather than risk talking. It would have given the story some much-needed dramatic impact. Yeah, right on. So again, people, you can write to us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. I responded to both of these people, although don't let that dissuade you from writing in. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's another way you can interact with us, and we will read your emails on the show. Again, that's weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com because we are that creative. (laughs) That wraps it up. We're done. This is it. However... We're not done with the entire show yet because Rich won't let me quit. And he has a teaser for the next episode coming up right now. Weird War Tales 42. Deal with the devil. New ports and Nazis. And some first time Weird War Tales history for better or for worse. Save the date. Will do. <laughs> I have no choice. So until we get to that distant Weird War Tales history, for better or worse, Rich and I will remain the Weird Warriors. We will keep on being the Batman bros. This will continue existing as the Weird Warriors podcast, where we promise to make war. No more.